Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. It's been just a couple of days since the bipartisan border bill was unveiled, but could support for its passage already be waning? We hear what lawmakers are saying. Some of the Times Square attackers who allegedly beat two cops now arrested again, this time thousands of miles away from New York City in Arizona. The next phase in the presidential nominating season has arrived. Voters in Nevada weigh in on who they like and why. California hit with heavy rain, flooding and mudslides, disrupting travel and leaving hundreds of thousands without power. The governor issuing a state of emergency. As the nation grapples with a nursing shortage, one college in New York is working to fill the gap by taking advantage of a new state law. We have on the ground coverage. The San Francisco 49ers face off against the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 58. Coaches and players speak to the media before Sunday's championship game in Las Vegas. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, a Senate border deal that would include aid to Ukraine and Israel now appears on shaky ground. This amid growing opposition from both Senate and House Republicans. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on what lawmakers are saying about the bill. The package seemed poised to be fast-tracked through the Senate, with the support of both Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. But the border security measures, including a provision that mandates a border shutdown when 5,000 illegal immigrants enter in a day, have drawn fierce blowback from conservatives. And in a turnaround, McConnell on Monday night recommended senators vote no to a procedural vote on Wednesday to begin debate on the bill. Senator James Lankford said the bill would make a significant difference in the way the U.S. handles asylum. For years, there have been loopholes that have been exploited in our asylum laws. This closes those loopholes so we can identify faster legitimate asylum seekers. Lankford says the bill would increase deportation flights, detention, and rapidly change how hearings and screenings are done. So it doesn't take 10 years as it does now, it takes weeks to months so that we can turn people around faster. If you don't have rapid consequences, you don't have consequences at all. Senator Chris Murphy says the bill helps cities and their mayors by giving the migrants work permits so they don't end up in homeless shelters and on the street. It gives the president the power to shut down the border um, in between the ports of entry when crossings get too high. Congressman Chip Roy criticized that portion of the bill which would impose automatic mandatory shutdowns if illegal entries hit a daily average of 5,000. If you set a standard of about 5,000, the cartels will go, ah, I get it. 4,999, 4, you got it. Senator Amy Klobuchar says the bill isn't everything everyone wanted, but says that's what compromise is about. What this bill does, it puts significant resources at the border, new technology and the like, to finally do something about fentanyl in addition to stopping this chaos at the border. Texas Governor Greg Abbott criticized President Biden for saying he needs Congress to act to secure the border. Speaking on Fox News. There are laws uh, in the United States uh, that require the president to deny illegal entry. President Biden says he's disappointed that dreamers are left out of the border bill. 
The bill is likely to dash hopes for a quick, clear path to citizenship for hundreds of thousands of people brought into the U.S. illegally as children as Congress takes a harder line on immigration. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The $118 billion bipartisan bill allocates about $20 billion for border security related measures. Let's take a closer look at how this money will be spent and the proposed changes to immigration policy. The bill will give $8 billion in emergency funding for immigration and customs enforcement, including $3 billion to increase detention capacity. Customs and Border Patrol will receive an additional $7 billion. That's on top of their annual budget of roughly $21 billion a year. More than $700 million would go toward hiring new Border Patrol agents and paying agents overtime. Additionally, the bill will provide $23 million to the DEA and $25 million to the State Department and USAID to counter fentanyl smuggling into the U.S. On top of that, $1.4 billion will be dispersed to help states and local governments handle the influx of illegal immigrants. The bill would also introduce an expedited process for asylum seekers, giving asylum officers emergency authority to screen applicants within 90 days of their arrival in the country using a tougher standard, and for those who pass, decide cases within another 90 days. The goal is to make sure no asylum case reviews last longer than six months. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services would get $4 billion to hire more than 4,300 officers who would take on the work now reserved for immigration judges. The bill will also require Homeland Security to turn away all migrants if illegal crossings exceed 5,000 on average over seven days, or 8,500 in a single day. So if this new power were applied and you're apprehended between ports of entry, uh, if you seek asylum, you wouldn't be allowed to do that and you could be rapidly deported from the United States back to Mexico. The bill mandates that the Biden administration would have to use the money already laid out for a border wall during the Trump years. It also includes an offer of permanent residency to Afghan nationals who fled the country after the Taliban takeover in 2021. And here to speak with us about the Senate's proposed border deal is Victor Avila, a retired supervisory special agent with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Victor, welcome back. Always great to have you on. As a former Border Patrol agent, how do you view this deal and its effectiveness? Well, listen, I've been on top of it uh, in the last couple of days, and uh, you guys have done a great job outlining the specifics uh, of this uh, bipartisan bill. Uh, I got to tell you, I don't like it. Um, it. It doesn't do what I wanted to do, and that is to stop the flow of illegal aliens coming into our country. Uh, you talk about all the money that's being allocated to all these different agencies, and I worked with these agencies, especially USCIS, which is one of the, probably the biggest bureaucratic agencies that exist uh, under the Department of Homeland Security. The answer is not to give them more money and more personnel. You wouldn't need that unless you wanted to accept more people into this country and process them in here what i want to see is two very simple things have the people remain in mexico and wait there to see how we look at their asylum claims if in fact they even have one remember Victor, nine out of ten people coming to the country do not uh, qualify for that right there have been many criticisms of this deal and of course of the biden administration for not just re-implementing the remain in mexico policy but some analysts have been saying that uh you know dynamics with Mexico have changed and that that may not be such a simple solution at this time anymore. What are your thoughts on that? 
A great question because uh, the Biden administration has sent Secretary Blinken and Secretary Mayorkas to Mexico and they made a deal. They made a secret deal that have not involved the American people. And uh, the, what I've seen on the ground here, especially at the border, is that Mexico all of a sudden is cooperating and keeping a lot of the illegals from coming into the country. The numbers that plummeted in January. So I know there is coordination there. But instead of Mexico telling us and demanding the United States what they want, it should be the other way around. The United States should hold Mexico accountable for their role in allowing a lot of people from over 150 countries to use their country of Mexico as a springboard to come into ours. And you're saying that this bill is not effective at uh, fending off people who are coming from the border, but we do have also some uh, congressmen uh, criticizing the bill, saying that it is actually creating a pull factor if it gets passed. So we have uh, Texas Congressman Mike McCall saying that some of the features, including the you know, giving people an, an ankle bracelet or perhaps a work permit and setting them free into the interior with a 90-day return date to their hearing would create a, some kind of pull factor. What are your thoughts on that? And that's exactly what it is, that magnet. We, we are not getting rid of the magnet and the incentives to come to this country. And the, the problem here, now, the bigger picture, is that the people coming here uh, are finding themselves in very, very uh, difficult situations. They're homeless. They don't have a job. They don't have education. And so all of that is now being given to them by the government under uh, our tax dollars. And a lot of people are upset throughout the country because we have a lot of needs within our own U.S. citizens. And it doesn't seem to be fair that they put people from uh, all over the world before them. And so that's, that's actually a really good uh, way to look at it. If you stop the incentives, incentives, if you stop New York from giving them $53 million in debit cards or credit cards, uh, they will stop coming. Now, the border uh, unless that stops. Yeah. Border Patrol, the Border Patrol Union has endorsed this bill, uh, the border aspect of this proposed bill. How, how much of an impact do you think that will have on negotiations for the bill and the public's opinion of it? Uh, and that's a difficult situation for me because um, uh, I, I love what the, the men and women of Border Patrol do, but the, let's understand that the Border Patrol Union uh, has, uh, is a political wing of the Border Patrol and sometimes, I believe, are not expressing the views of the men and women on the ground. Uh, I talk to a lot of border agents and they want and are craving for them to get their job back. This bill doesn't give them the authority to do that. All right, Victor Avila, retired supervisory special agent with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. An update on the violent attack on police officers near Times Square. Authorities reportedly arrested some of the suspects in Phoenix, Arizona. That's after leaving New York City for California last week. Last week, this video went viral. It shows a group of people believed to be illegal immigrants attacking two police officers near Times Square. Manhattan's district attorney's office confirmed to NTD that the suspects were released without bail. Reports later suggested that the suspects boarded a bus for California after having been released from custody in New York. Fox News now says that authorities arrested the suspects in Phoenix, Arizona. ICE sources reportedly confirmed the arrests last night. It's not clear which of the suspects have been arrested. Also on Monday, New York City Mayor Eric Adams spoke about illegal immigrants who commit crimes. 
I want to reiterate uh, the overwhelming number of 170 plus thousand migrants and asylum seekers are attempting to continue their next leg of their journey of pursuing the American dream. But those who commit a crime will be treated like any other criminal in this city. The small number of people are breaking the law and having a huge impact on our public safety. And that is why we zeroed in on them. City officials added that it's often hard to track illegal immigrants who commit crimes. That's because the city sometimes has no information about them, such as no criminal history, no photos, no phone number, or other information. House lawmakers are set to vote today on a resolution to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The House Homeland Security Committee filed its impeachment resolution last week. They accused Mayorkas of high crimes and misdemeanors in his handling of the southern border. Two GOP congressmen, Representatives Tom McClintock and Ken Buck, have already said they would vote against the resolution. Both have argued that an impeachable offense has not been identified. With full attendance, Republicans can only lose three votes to pass the impeachment resolution. If the full House passes the articles, Mayorkas would become the first cabinet secretary to be impeached in nearly 150 years. Coming up, a super PAC backing President Biden reportedly plans to spend millions highlighting rival Donald Trump's legal issues. Find out why a super PAC is doing this and not the Biden campaign itself. And who would former President Trump choose as his running mate? We asked New Yorkers what they think. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Targeting former President Trump, a super PAC backing President Biden reportedly plans to spend millions highlighting Trump's legal issues. And GOP candidate Nikki Haley airs a new TV ad today taking aim at the former president. A super PAC called Unite the Country is planning to spend $40 million to highlight Trump's legal battles. NBC reports that the goal is to influence swing state voters who aren't sure about supporting Trump. The Biden campaign previously said it doesn't plan on using Trump's legal issues against the former president. That's to avoid making it appear that Biden is using the Justice Department to go after a political opponent. And in South Carolina, former Governor Nikki Haley is launching a new ad today. The 30-second video alleges that Trump rants a lot and that chaos follows him. The narrator also hints at Trump's age, saying he's getting older. The video also praises Haley's past, saying she took on the world's dictators at the UN. Polling averages show that Trump is leading Haley in her home state by around 30 points. Trump, in an interview yesterday, said he wants to debate President Biden immediately. Traditionally, there are three presidential debates running up to the general election. Trump says he wants to debate now for, in his words, the good of the country. Nikki Haley has applied for Secret Service protection following threats on the campaign trail. It's unclear when the former South Carolina governor made the request. She's had a visibly heightened security presence with her for about a week. There are reports of two swatting incidents in recent months at Haley's home in South Carolina, one of which occurred while her parents were there. Swatting is when someone makes a hoax call to emergency services to dispatch a large number of armed police officers to a specific location. The Secret Service provides protection only after it's authorized by the Secretary of Homeland Security, who consults with a Congressional Advisory Committee. In May 2007, then-Senator Barack Obama was placed under protection given the rising number of threats against him. Former President Trump and Nikki Haley will face off again for the Republican presidential nomination in Nevada this week. 
But because of legal disputes and political tactics, there are two separate contests. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. The first contest is a state-run primary on February 6th. Haley chose to be on that ballot, even though she won't get any delegates from winning. This is an opportunity for Nikki Haley to build momentum by not only winning the Nevada primary, despite the fact that there aren't any delegates attached, um, but also being able to show her ability to draw from a broader range of different kinds of voters. The second vote is a caucus on February 8th, organized by the Nevada Republican Party. Only Trump will appear on that ticket. And because only candidates participating in the party-run caucus can compete for the state's 26 delegates, Trump is expected to win all of them. The Trump camp had gone um, sort of all over the country working on these state parties to try to get rule changes that would benefit the Trump camp. And Nevada is an example of a place where this definitely worked. A state law mandates that a primary must be held, but the Nevada GOP voted to stick with a caucus. This conflict resulted in two competing ballots. Caucuses tend to benefit candidates who have maybe not as big of a base, but a very highly motivated base. And I think that is a good way to describe um, Trump supporters here in Nevada. Trump has almost clinched the nomination after victories in Iowa and New Hampshire. Haley has vowed to stay in the race. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. As the nominating season moves to Nevada, voters in the Silver State weigh in on who they're supporting and why. Let's take a look. I'm very conservative. Like I said, I was a police officer for 34 years. Uh, I not real happy with the uh, federal government at this time. I, I, I'm concerned about uh, immigration, illegal immigration, uh, and things of that nature. I realize that he comes with a package uh, of issues. Uh, most human beings do. Uh, he hasn't done anything that I think a lot of other people have, have done. Um, he kept his word on everything he said he'd do. He did it. I'm all for Biden. <laughs> All for Biden, and I, I've seen, and, and like I've told you, I've seen um, the commitment of the government to fully support small businesses. Based from who I meet here at the restaurant, I think it's a mix. It's still, it's still half and half um, when it comes to um, the the demographics of the voters. I think it's it's still, it's still an, it's still like an a difficult race to, to predict. And joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to give us the latest updates from the financial world. Don, what do you have for us today? All right, so I wanted to talk a little bit about what Trump said on Fox News about what he's going to do if he's reelected in terms of China. So he says uh, he was asked about a report saying that he might be considering tariffs on China uh, somewhere around 60%. Now, 60% is very significant. Uh, so what Trump said that, quote, we have to do it. Um, he said he's maybe even considering going even higher than 60% tariffs on Chinese, good, uh, Chinese goods. Uh, so his position is that uh, China really has taken advantage of the U.S. I mean, we've seen instances where Chinese companies are exporting products to the U.S. and they're, they're making those products extremely cheap. And, you know, 
sometimes these actions are actually state-backed as well. So look, this is hurting American businesses because people end up buying Chinese goods instead of American-made products. And um, the theory here is with uh, tariffs on China, uh, it's going to make American products more competitive uh, at a price level, and this could uh, protect the American industry. And the Trump administration uh, began imposing these tariffs these tariffs back in 2018 and the biden administration has uh, also largely kept those tariffs in place it does seem like something like this would escalate a trade war between china and the u.s well this is uh, actually exactly what happened uh, a couple of years ago when uh, trump started uh, with the tariffs uh, china responded with tariffs of their own on u.s products and that just kept escalating um, but Trump uh, came up with a trade deal with China because of this uh, trade war. Uh, I mean, we can think of it as basically a trade armistice uh, prevented the trade war from escalating further. So in that deal, China agreed to uh, buy at least $227 billion of U.S. exports in 2020 and $274 billion in 2021. But in the end, China actually uh, never lived up, lived up to those promises. Um, so, you know, Speaking of the deal, America's closest ally in Asia, Japan, actually cautioned against making another deal, cautioned Trump against making a deal with China again because uh, of the efforts that Western countries has been, have been taking in order to rein in China. So you mean, uh, there's, uh, there's been a lot of talks about um, you know, deals with China, um, but Trump's stance is America first. And it's not just China. And J Japan has seen uh, tariffs as well because uh, Trump uh, has levied those uh, actions during his administration, not just on China. But you know, in terms of whether this could escalate a trade war, uh, it's potentially possible or China could come up with other responses uh, like sanctions or, or something else. Thank you, Don Ma, host of NCD Business. Thank you. Yeah, always great to have you on. All right, next up, a D.C. appeals court has ruled that former President Trump can be prosecuted for his role in the events of January 6, 2021. Trump had argued that his actions were part of his official duties as president and that he was shielded from criminal liability. The court unanimously rejected his argument, saying that Trump, now a private citizen, is subject to prosecution like any other individual. Trump's team could appeal the decision to the Supreme Court or seek a review by the full appeals court. The Supreme Court declined to fast-track the case, but may ultimately hear it. Co-defendants in former President Trump's Georgia 2020 election case are stepping up efforts to disqualify Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. Several co-defendants say an evidentiary hearing needs to be held over allegations of misconduct. The Atlanta DA asked a judge to cancel a hearing set for next week. Willis says there's no conflict of interest in having a personal relationship with the lead prosecutor. The judge is still weighing his response. Another motion asking for Willis and her entire team to be disqualified was filed yesterday. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the requests. I am Fonnie Willis. I am the elected district attorney here in Fulton County. David Schaefer filed a motion Monday asking for Willis and her entire team to be dismissed. The alternate elector who cast a ballot for Trump and former Georgia GOP chair is accusing Willis of engaging in a pattern of prosecutorial forensic misconduct. The motion cites multiple news articles and interviews with Willis and claims all causes for disqualification are self-inflicted blows. 
It alleges Willis tried to influence the public and prospective jurors by referring to co-defendants as fake electors. The argument resembles one filed by Trump, accusing the DA of making extrajudicial statements meant to inject racial animus and prejudice into the case. Both motions highlight Willis's speech at Atlanta's Big Bethel Church last month. Defense attorneys call Willis's claim that she's doing God's work grossly improper, arguing she seems to suggest God opposes the motion to disqualify her and approves of her prosecutorial decisions. Schaefer also referenced allegations made by co-defendant Michael Roman around Willis's relationship with the special prosecutor she hired, Nathan Wade. Wade swore in affidavit his personal relationship with Willis began in 2022 and stated they never lived together. Roman's attorney in a filing last Friday told the judge an evidentiary hearing set for next week is needed because she has witnesses who can testify Wade and Willis had shared an apartment and were more than just friends as early as 2019. Schaefer in a separate motion asked for a change of venue, claiming he can't get a fair trial in Fulton County. Trump, seeking to stay on Colorado's GOP ballot, submitted his final written argument Monday to the U.S. Supreme Court. He noted unprecedented wins in the Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire primary, arguing his disqualification would betray the nation's respect for democracy. Justices are set to hear oral arguments in the case Thursday. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. While President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris lead the presidential race for Democrats, a big question on the Republican side. Who would former President Trump choose as his running mate? Folks near the Wall Street district of New York City have a variety of responses. Who do you think Trump will choose as his vice president? Nikki Haley. And why do you say that? Because um, he needs women. And I think he thinks, first of all, I think he probably thinks he can control her. And I think he wants a woman to be his running mate. The name I've seen the most is Tim Scott. So I'm, I guess I'm going to go with Tim Scott. Vivek, yeah. yeah. I definitely believe Vivek, yeah. And, and why do you say that? Because they stand, they stand against the same exact things and they stand they stand with the same values you get me so they have basically the same values and the same principles and morals as each other you get me and as other Americans you know because we're kind of sick and tired of Joe Biden and the Democrats just ruining everything I think you should choose really someone who's who can take up this responsibility and not make a lot of mess, mess, mess ups that have happened before Biden's VP right now another term you know it could change the, the conversation but I'm not not enough for me to vote for Trump. I don't think so. We'll see who he chooses. I don't know who he will pick. Um, I'm hoping he doesn't get a chance to pick a vice president. Um, I think our country has had probably enough of Donald Trump. I think uh, I think he will choose a female, though, because I think there are a lot of females of water. And then, uh, yeah, I think that uh, he needs to, to, to win the election. Coming up, the devastating Maui wildfires it killed 100 people last August. A new police report details the challenges faced by first responders. During a record-breaking storm in Los Angeles, a man was rescued from the rushing floodwaters after jumping in to save his dog. America's nursing shortage, a crisis has gotten worse since the COVID-19 pandemic. And on the ground to look at how one nursing school is tackling the issue after the break. A major storm lashed California with heavy rain yesterday, causing flooding, mudslides, and power outages across the Golden State. The National Weather Service said a staggering 10 inches or more of rainfall swamped the Los Angeles area since Sunday. Officials on Monday reported traffic collisions, mudslides, and stranded motorists. The rain causing widespread flooding. 
In San Diego, the mayor issued evacuation warnings for residents in low-lying areas. Across the state, hundreds of trees fell from winds that reached over 100 miles per hour. At least three deaths have been reported as a result of trees falling on people, according to the LA Times. Thousands of flights in and out of California were canceled. The Pacific Coast Highway was also closed in places. During the peak of the storm, over a million lost power. As of Monday, 350,000 statewide were still without power. Governor Gavin Newsom declared a state of emergency in eight Southern California counties. President Biden said he was working closely with Newsom to get resources mobilized. The record-setting rain does come with a silver lining. Experts say it'll improve water levels, provide drought and wildfire resistance, and help fish habitats. Firefighters in California pulled a man from the rain-swollen Los Angeles River yesterday. That's after he jumped in the rushing water to save his dog. Take a look at how it happened. A local fire department was able to lower a rescuer into the river to reach the man, while other crews searched for the dog. The man was still conscious when he was pulled from the water and flown to a hospital. The dog was found down the river where it had managed to swim to safety. A local shelter is caring for the dog to treat minor injuries. And the Maui Police Department releasing a preliminary report on the devastating Hawaii wildfires that destroyed the historic Lahaina District last August. Investigators found that a combination of factors created a difficult situation for first responders. They found that severe weather conditions fueled the flames, making many roads impassable. And the already short-staffed police force faced challenges with communication and equipment that they hadn't anticipated. Many questions still remain, including the exact cause of the fire. But the report focuses solely on police response, highlighting what worked well and what didn't, and making recommendations for how to better deal with future catastrophes. According to the report, the fires claimed the lives of 100 people, scorched over 6,600 6, acres of land, and destroyed thousands of homes and structures. State officials said it was Hawaii's worst natural disaster and the deadliest wildfire in America in over a century. Oklahoma is taking aim at state agencies celebrating LGBT Pride Month or displaying the rainbow pride flag. A new bill called the Patriotism Not Pride Act would stop the state from using public money to support or promote LGBT-related events or activities. If passed, the bill would trigger a state of emergency and forbid any flags representing sexual orientation or gender identity on state grounds. The bill is one of the first attempts to restrict the allocation of state funds for pride events. This year, similar bills were presented in at least two other states, Florida and Tennessee, that would ban ra rainbow pride flags in schools. Medicare has started its first ever negotiations with drug makers over the cost of 10 expensive medications. Drug companies have argued the negotiations could chill their research and development, leading to fewer new medications coming to market. The negotiations come as Senator Bernie Sanders is once again taking the pharmaceutical industry to task. He issued a report today highlighting the cost of three blockbuster drugs that are far pricier in the U.S. than in other countries. Among them, the annual list price of Bristol-Myers Squibb's Eliquis, a blood thinner that reduces the risk of stroke, is $7,100 in the U.S., but it's under $1,000 in Japan, Canada, Germany, and the U.K. In France, it's just $650. There's a shortage of healthcare workers in America. The trend was in play before the COVID-19 pandemic, but was exacerbated when the virus struck. We went to a small nursing school in Queens, New York, to learn how they're filling the gap. 
I'm here at the Plaza College School of Nursing in Queens, New York, which is helping the country deal with the nationwide healthcare worker shortage. There's sort of a perfect storm of factors creating a shortage of nurses around the country. Um, baby boomers are getting older, which means an increased demand on the medical industry. Um, nurses are getting older and retiring. And of course, COVID caused a lot of people to quit early with all the increased pressure from that. This school is one of a number of schools across the country helping to fill that gap of nurses. The shortage of nurses has really been taking place due to um, retiring nurses, nurses that are sort of aging out. And then, of course, was intensified by the COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of nurses experienced burnout during that, went into early retirement during that. The healthcare worker shortage was a problem before the pandemic, but during the pandemic, 20% of all healthcare workers quit their jobs, according to a 2021 morning consult report. There's also a shortage of nursing educators. This means it's harder to train the next generation of nurses, worsening the healthcare worker shortage in America. They say that there's a shortage of 100,000 nurses currently nationwide. Um, it's bigger than that. And over the next decade, it's really expected to just increase. The Bureau of Labor Statistics expects the nation will be short 195,000 nurses by 2031. How does this problem affect practicing nurses? Nurses have to do so much more with so little. So if they don't have the staff, then they reach burnout a lot faster. Their stress levels are up. It forces them to actually want to leave the profession because they're doing so much with so little. Many of them are experiencing burnout, right? They're working longer shifts. They are, it's harder for them to show up and to be there for their patients because they themselves are getting sick. Uh, more often, and, um, you know, it's, it's affecting the, the quality of care. How exactly is it affecting patients? Patients may be experiencing a higher turnover in their, in their nurses. Some patients, they get attached to certain patients, I mean, to certain uh, staff nurses. They ask for these staff nurses over and over because they develop a bond. But sometimes the staff nursing is not there. And sometimes it takes them longer to get the services that they need. So then the patients become frustrated, like, what's going on? The healthcare worker shortage has direct impacts on patients. And it's a problem that's not going away anytime soon. As hospitals search for solutions, some lawmakers are now changing the requirements for nursing degrees. In New York State, nursing students can now complete up to a third of their clinical training through simulated experiences. So that allows um, a larger percentage of the curriculum to be able to be conducted in the labs because there's a shortage of clinical sites and um, hospitals that can accept students because they're so busy because they have a shortage of nurses that can accept students onto their units. It hurts when I Piggybacking on New York's law, Plaza College School of Nursing uses animatronic training mannequins to give students hands-on experience without leaving the classroom. The mannequins are high fidelity. We have three high fidelity simulators and they interact with the students just like a patient would. They can speak to the students. They can cry, they can moan, groan, express pain, um, explain what they're feeling. So when the students get to the maternity and pediatric course, this is one of the, the mannequins um, that they'll be dealing with. So Victoria actually, Victoria, she can breathe, she can moan, she makes sounds. Um, but primarily students like to fill the stomach so we could 
let the students feel what a pregnant woman's stomach will feel like in, in um, practice when they get out to practice. What do students think of these mannequins? We spoke with Denise Criolo, a new student at Plaza College. I think it'll give us a better, instead of real people, you, you might panic, I guess. Um, so learning here with the mannequins, I think will give us a better idea of how to deal with um, with real life patients. Breaker barber can be used on babies to check. The hands-on training can't be a complete substitute for real interactions, but it's meant to better prepare students to join the workforce. We are always getting really positive feedback on our students' performance when they're out at the clinical sites. Small nursing schools like this one won't solve the shortage of nurses overnight, but legislation is incentivizing more schools to follow suit to cut down on training time while ensuring new nurses are ready to serve patients. Chris Beers, NTD News. Coming up, a Canadian police chief apologizing to an alleged victim in a sexual assault case. Five hockey players on Canada's 2018 World Junior team have been charged with the crime. The San Francisco 49ers face off against the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 58. Coaches and players speak to the media before Sunday's championship game in Las Vegas. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Five members of Canada's 2018 World Junior Hockey Team have been charged with sexual assault. Police in the city of London, Ontario confirmed the charges yesterday. The police chief apologized to the alleged victim for the time it took to see progress in the case. I want to extend on behalf of the London Police Service my sincerest apology to the victim, to her family, for the amount of time that it has taken to reach this point. The press conference came several days after players Carter Hart, Michael McLeod, Cal Foote, Dylan Dubay, and Alex Formanton turned themselves in. Formanton is a former forward for the National Hockey League, currently playing in Switzerland, while the other four are active NHL players who have taken paid leaves of absences from their respective teams. The players deny criminal wrongdoing and no allegations have been proven. The case was originally closed in 2019 after investigators found there were insufficient grounds to lay a charge. Then in 2022, Canadian sports channel TSN reported that a woman identified only by her initials in court documents had settled a multi-million dollar lawsuit she filed against Hockey Canada and other defendants, including eight unnamed players. Investigators reopened the case later that year in response to public outrage after news of the Hockey Canada settlement came to light. The case began with a procedural video hearing Monday. The players were represented by their attorneys and did not attend themselves. The next hearing in the case is set for late April. The San Francisco 49ers are set to face off against the Kansas City Chiefs at Super Bowl 58 on Sunday. Coaches and players gathered at Las Vegas Allegiant Stadium to give their thoughts ahead of the NFL championship game. The Kansas City Chiefs will take on the San Francisco 49ers Sunday for the coveted Vince Lombardi Trophy. For 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy, a chance to play in the championship game came sooner than expected. I think, you know, for me, I always wanted to be ready for whenever my opportunity came. I didn't know if I was going to, you know, be a backup for a while in the NFL and, and maybe get a shot in three to four to five years. 
Head coach Kyle Shanahan explained what his 24-year-old quarterback would need to do to win. You got to be able to hang in there and take hits and be fearless. You got to be able to read coverages to know when it's the right time to go there. You got to have the touch to drop it in over people. You got to have the patience and touch and balance to check it down when it's not there. Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes described his emotions leading up to Sunday's big game. I think every every experience that you get, you can learn from and you can get gain more from. And so um, you're always going to have nerves going into the Super Bowl. It's about embracing those nerves, um, understanding that they're going to be there, um, and then going out there and being who you are. Kansas City Chiefs head coach Andy Reid has taken the defending champions to four Super Bowls in the past five seasons. He also praised opposing quarterback Purdy's talent and ability to adapt. Um, he's a heck of a football player, and he does everything really well. And... Um, and so that presents a, an issue. He can throw the ball, he can run the ball, he's smart, he, you know, he can handle pressure, all those things he does a great job with. Singer-songwriter Taylor Swift has been one of this season's biggest sensations. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell laughed off claims that the league had scripted the romance between her and the Chiefs tight end, Travis Kelsey. I don't think I'm that good a scripter um, or anybody on our staff. I, I, I think it's, you know, I listen, there is no way that I could have scripted that one. Let's just put it that way. But she is, um, or anybody in our office, she's, she's in a remarkable performer. The Super Bowl will kick off Sunday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The discovery of a decades-old message in a bottle has inspired alumni of a Long Island, New York high school to remember their beloved science teacher. It all started when a man found a green bottle in a marsh on Long Island last week. Inside the bottle was a letter, rolled up and in perfect condition. Dated October 1992, the letter reads in part, Dear Finder, as part of an earth science project for ninth grade, this bottle was thrown into the Atlantic Ocean near Long Island. The man posted his find to the high school's alumni Facebook group yesterday. Days later, the comments section was flooded with kind messages about the teacher who assigned the project, Richard E. Brooks. Brooks' son says his fa father, who died last year, taught earth science at the school for about 40 years. He said putting messages in bottles was one of his father's favorite school projects. And while this body bottle was found just a few miles from where it was released, Brooks' son said the students' bottles have been found in places as far away as the Azores Islands. And an injured owl was not in the cooperative mood when rescuers in Colorado Springs came to try to help it. The bird came face to face with state parks and wildlife officials on Monday, but the owl tried to make a break for nearby trees, leading the officers on a short foot chase. The officers later threw a blanket on the little runaway, which did the trick, and got the owl under control. Officials say the bird's wings were injured and it showed signs of head trauma. The owl is now recovering at a nonprofit raptor center. If you have any tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Major development in former President Trump's D.C. election case. An appeals court rules that he has no immunity from the January 6th prosecution. We have the latest. In the Colorado ballot battle, Trump makes his final arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court hears the case this week. Our legal correspondent joins us with, with more details. A new report says millions in federal COVID funds went to illegal immigrants. Find out the reasoning behind the decision. 
Multiple countries and tech companies sign a declaration regarding the dangers of spyware. We bring you the details of the joint statement. Tucker Carlson's visit to Moscow is sparking speculation that he may interview Russian President Vladimir Putin. How the Kremlin's responding. Shen Yun Performing Arts completes 10 shows in London, leaving audience members amazed at the artistry of the performance. Hear what they had to say. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, breaking news. A D.C. appeals court has ruled that former President Trump can be prosecuted for his role in the events of January 6, 2021. Trump had argued that his actions were part of his official duties as president and that he was shielded from criminal liability. The court unanimously rejected his argument, saying that Trump, now a private citizen, is subject to prosecution like any other individual. The Trump campaign issued a statement shortly after the decision. It said that if immunity is not granted to a president, the opposing party will indict every future president who leaves office. Trump's team could appeal the decision to the Supreme Court or seek a review by the full appeals court. The Supreme Court declined to fast-track the case, but may ultimately hear it. Does the government's use of AI technologies threaten First Amendment rights? The House Judiciary Committee is holding a hearing to explore the issue. I cover the Supreme Court and do investigative reporting. In September 2021, I started looking into the government's funding of censorship tools after finding that the National Science Foundation had launched a program awarding grants to researchers to develop projects aimed at combating misinformation. What I discovered was a multi-million dollar effort to build what I call a censorship industrial complex, using taxpayer dollars as seed funding for various projects. The efforts fit within the broader trend of the federal government's increasing involvement in online censorship, from the Center for Disease Control flagging posts during COVID-19, to the FBI working with social media companies to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story. Two of the witnesses who testified are investigative journalists. They gave detailed examples of how the federal government is funding AI-powered tools capable of online censorship. That includes fact-checking programs aimed at combating misinformation. Caitlin Richardson from The Daily Caller said issues like vaccine hesitancy and electoral skepticism are areas of special interest. Lee Fang is also an investigative journalist. He voiced similar concerns. He says private security firms are increasingly marketing AI solutions to government agencies. And that mounting evidence suggests that state and business interests are already deploying this technology with the goal of stifling lawful discourse and silencing dissent. New Jersey Congressman Chris Smith sounding the alarm on the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty. He held a press conference yesterday highlighting concerns over potential WHO overreach, infringement on U.S. sovereignty, and a host of other issues. The treaty, announced in March of 2021, aims to enhance international cooperation to improve preparedness for the next potential pandemic. But Smith said far too little scrutiny has been given to the agreement. The treaty, which will be legally binding, promises a sustainable funding mechanism that will rely on annual monetary contributions to the WHO. It's unclear, Smith said, whether the Biden administration intends to submit this treaty agreement to the Senate for its approval. Whether it's Ebola, HIV, AIDS, cholera, or COVID-19, or any other pandemic we've had, 
to face. Americans have been extremely generous and have relied on US agencies which are accountable to the American people to make recommendations and decisions concerning allocation of funds, not unelected bureaucrats at WHO in New Jersey. Alongside Smith were several experts, all of whom laid out their concerns with the proposed treaty. A section of the treaty would require countries to implement pandemic prevention and public health service plans that are consistent with international health regulations. I submit to you that it's going to be done through vaccine passports, although they're not going to call them vaccine passports, they're going to call them digital IDs. The purpose of these IDs, the WHO says, is to monitor if people are sick and whether they are vaccinated. But Little John says their scope could be much broader. But these, but if you look on the World Economic Forum website, there's a chart about what you're going to have to have a digital ID to do, which is access health care, uh, travel, have a bank account, shop online, pay your taxes, vote. Smith said the new treaty would give the WHO unprecedented power. And when, if and when there is a pandemic, they will be able to say to country X, Y, and Z, uh, we demand, we don't ask, we demand, we don't request, we demand at least 20% of the cost uh, of that pandemic, you know, the, the, whatever it is, that, uh, vaccinations that have to be paid for, uh, we take it, we now control it, and we disseminate it. The congressman is demanding that more questions be asked of WHO before Americans accept any agreement from the international body. And joining us now is Reggie Littlejohn, the co-founder of Sovereignty Coalition, a nonpartisan advocacy group focused on defending national sovereignty. Reggie, welcome. Great to have you on our show. At yesterday's press conference, you said that the pandemic treaty presents the greatest threat to the freedom the world has ever faced. That's a strong statement. Why do you believe that? Because what it does is it puts the entire world in a situation which we would call the digital gulag. As your introduction showed, the, the World Health Organization is colluding or um, collaborating with the European Union to roll out digital IDs worldwide. And these digital IDs, the pretext for them is we need to see who's sick, who's vaccinated, but they will keep track of just about every single aspect of human life on Earth. And if you combine those with a central bank digital currency where you can shut off a person's access to funds based on what the digital IDs are tracking, we have completely lost our freedom. And yeah. also earlier in the broadcast, uh, you referenced misinformation and disinformation that the government is tracking these. So if they find anything that is contrary to what the World Health Organization's narrative is, then they can use these digital IDs to shut us down and shut us off from civil society. Now, these are all highly concerning uh, things that you're presenting. I, I do know there has been criticism of the WHO in terms of potential control. We had Congress, Congressman Mario Diaz-Ballard recently saying that the WHO has become a subsidiary of the Chinese Communist Party, which is, of course, a dictatorship. And he's calling for the US to defund the WHO. Could you explain the connection with the WHO and the CCP and, and the evidence for it? Well, the, the connection is that the WHO seems to be basically a mouthpiece for the CCP. We saw that in COVID. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party in COVID lied. They said that there was no human-to-human -human transmission. The WHO repeated that. The CCP said 
that they've got COVID under control and that there should be no restriction in flights. Meanwhile, they were restricting flights and travel into um, and from Wuhan internally, but they were saying that we would be racist if we would restrict flights from China and the WHO parroted that. When the WHO came over to China, they, the Chinese Communist Party seriously restricted uh, their ability to conduct any kind of an investigation, and the WHO did not push back. So then, okay, then the then the WHO uh, parroted China's response to to the um, epidemic, which was to lockdowns, mask mandates, uh, vaccine mandates, imposing the China model on the world. Right. So I want to take a look, considering everything you've just laid on the table, you know, officials in the Biden administration are saying that strengthening the WHO will create a situation where the WHO is able to hold China accountable in potential future pandemic situations. How do you see that? I think that's just nonsense. In what world would we trust the WHO, which was the mouthpiece of the Chinese Communist Party during the first pandemic, to turn around and hold them accountable in the next pandemic? It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And you've, you're arguing that the, uh, the WHO, you mentioned earlier, um, that uh, it could create, this, this new treaty could create a digital gulag sort of situation. Um, what, what do you think is next for this treaty? Well, what's next for the treaty is that they're going to try to jam it through in May of 2024 this year, along with the international health regulations. And with respect to the IHR um, regulation amendments, they were supposed to have submitted the proposed uh, amendments on, in January of this year, and they did not. So they should be precluded from forcing a vote in May they are continuing to uh, negotiate them. It looks like they're going to negotiate them to the weekend before the World Health Assembly meeting in May. And these things are very weighty. They're very complicated. And the world needs to know four months in advance, which is what their, the World Health Organization's own rules say, what these are so that civil society can respond and voice our concerns. So that's what's next for them. And what I would argue is that these votes must be delayed. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Reggie Littlejohn, co-founder of Sovereignty Coalition. Thank you so much. And a new report by a free market think tank has revealed that millions in federal COVID funds were used in Washington state to help illegal immigrants. The migrants were not eligible to receive federal economic impact payments during the lockdowns. The Economic Policy Innovation Center says Washington State set up a COVID-19 immigrant relief fund in 2020. It was for granting checks to people ineligible for government assistance programs due to their immigration status. A report shows that around $128 million was allocated between October 2020 and May 2021 during its first round, giving more than 120,000 applicants a grant of $1,000 each. In April 2021, there was another $340 million round of funding for illegal immigrants in Washington. The report says that by the end of the 2022 and 2023 funding rounds, over 100,000 applicants each received over $3,000. State officials say the fund helped those not eligible. Coming up, the next phase in the presidential nominating season has arrived. Voters in Nevada weigh in on who they like and why. Some of the Times Square attackers who allegedly beat two cops now arrested again, this time thousands of miles away from New York City in Arizona. 
former President Trump could soon be campaigning in a deep blue state. He says there's a chance to flip New York red. We ask New Yorkers what they think after the break. Targeting former President Trump, a super PAC backing President Biden reportedly plans to spend millions highlighting Trump's legal issues. And GOP candidate Nikki Haley airs a new TV ad today taking aim at the former president. A super PAC called Unite the Country is planning to spend $40 million to highlight Trump's legal battles. NBC reports that the goal is to influence swing state voters who aren't sure about supporting Trump. The Biden campaign previously said it doesn't plan on using Trump's legal issues against the former president. That's to avoid making it appear that Biden is using the Justice Department to go after a political opponent. And in South Carolina, former Governor Nikki Haley is launching a new ad today. The 30-second video alleges that Trump rants a lot and that chaos follows him. The narrator also hints at Trump's age, saying he's getting older. The video also praises Haley's past, saying she took on the world's dictators at the UN. Polling averages show that Trump is leading Haley in her home state by around 30 points. Trump, in an interview yesterday, said he wants to debate President Biden immediately. Traditionally, there are three presidential debates running up to the general election. Trump says he wants to debate now for, in his words, the good of the country. As the nominating season moves to Nevada, voters in the Silver State weigh in on who they're supporting and why. Let's take a look. I'm very conservative. Like I said, I was a police officer for 34 years. Uh, I'm not real happy with the uh, federal government at this time. I, I, I'm concerned about uh, immigration, illegal immigration, uh, and things of that nature. I realize that he comes with a package uh, of issues. Uh, most human beings do. Uh, he hasn't done anything that I think a lot of other people have, have done. Um, he kept his word on everything he said he'd do. He did it. I'm all for Biden. <laughs> all for Biden. And I, I've seen, and, and like I've told you, I've seen um, the commitment of the government to fully support small businesses. Based from who I meet here at the restaurant, I think it's a mix. It's still, it's still half and half um, when it comes to um, the the demographics of the voters, I think it's it's still it's still an it's still like an, a difficult race to, to predict. A Colorado case update: Former President Trump's attorney filing a reply brief to the nation's highest court in a case that will determine if Trump will be disqualified from the ballot. We turn it now to NTD's Arlene Richards for details on the brief. Arlene, what are Trump's attorneys arguing? Well, their main focus is on the status of Trump as a former president and also how the law should be applied. And they say that Colorado court got it wrong. Now, their main arguments are that the president is not an officer of the United States, President Trump did not engage in an insurrection, and Section 3 of the 14th Amendment should be enforced only through Congress. Now, they also make the point that Trump is the front runner in the Republican primary race and that it should be up to the voters to decide who they want as president and not a state court or the Secretary of State. Now, uh, moving to Colorado, what's the position of the voters over there? So the Colorado voters said in their response brief that they had a very, many questions to raise to the court, and, and including whether or not the state can exclude a candidate from their ballot based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And their main arguments are 
The presidency and the president does fall within the list of offices and officers mentioned in this Section 3. A state doesn't have, the, have to wait for Congress to pass legislation before the state can enforce Section 3 under its own state law. And Trump intentionally mobilized and encouraged a violent attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, which they say was an insurrection. And they say, therefore, he engaged in the insurrection, which is the language used in this Section 3 uh, of the 14th Amendment. Now, Arlene, we're just two days away from the historic hearing before the U.S. Supreme Court. What can we expect? Well, the justices will ultimately have to decide whether or not former President Trump can be on the ballot in Colorado and in other states across the country. Now, they're going to address a specific question, and that is, did the Colorado Supreme Court err in ordering President Trump excluded from the 2024 presidential primary ballot? And here's how the arguments will go. 80 minutes total, 40 minutes for Donald Trump's team, 30 minutes for Colorado voters' team, and 10 minutes for the Colorado Secretary of State's office. Audio streaming will be available, and the, and the arguments will kick off at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday. Arlene, thank you so much for that report. Please keep us and the viewers informed. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. The $118 billion Senate border and foreign aid package is set to be voted on this week. Earlier, I spoke with Colonel John Mills, senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy, on its potential impact. He's also the former director of cybersecurity policy at the Department of Defense. Colonel, thank you for joining us. So senators unveiled their border deal recently, and that would include aid to Ukraine and Israel. It's currently waiting for a vote this week, but Speaker Mike Johnson says it's dead on arrival. What's your analysis of the bill? Well, David, thank you so much. Um, I'm concerned. Uh, I don't think we know enough about the bill yet. The Senate seems far, uh, uh, let's say, uh, okay with a deal that really doesn't secure the border. And they say there's aid for Ukraine and Israel. Where's Taiwan? Where's Taiwan in this, this deal? Why don't we have uh, that address? There's an $18 billion backlog uh, for Taiwan. I mean, even Lindsey Graham uh, is saying without significant amendments, this, this deal's dead even in the Senate. So uh, we do have an inspector general now for for uh, Ukraine, uh, but uh, I, I th and they've already found a billion dollars of malfeasance there with not having to look very hard. So I'm, I'm not sure this deal is really going to be the one that secures the border. Now, is the foreign aid necessary for each of the countries? Um, you know, what will happen if if Ukraine and Israel doesn't get the aid? Well. This is a function of our the weakness in our industrial base. We are supporting three wars, three two wars and a contingency, and we're not even counting what America needs for their own armed forces. So, and those two, the, the wars are Ukraine and then Israel, and then making sure Taiwan has everything it's, it needs, plus rebuilding the. the the 2023 and 2024 defense budget went way up, and we are really having challenges in, in deliveries out of our weak industrial base. So I think we're going to have to think smarter and more innovative. We just don't have the capacity to support two conflicts, a contingency, and the needs of America at the same time. 
Now, as far as the bill goes, it's a $118.2 billion legislative aid. Um, about the majority, like $60 billion, would go to Ukraine and about $10 billion to Israel. And there's a, a nearly $2 billion to Taiwan, actually, from what I'm uh, understanding. Now, as the Chinese Communist Party becomes more and more aggressive towards Taiwan, the, the island nation, how impactful would this be for Taiwan? Well, $2 billion is, uh, if that's the case, is good, but there's already a $19 billion back order on things that have not been delivered yet. So you'd really have to say in aggregate there's $21 billion uh, to be delivered here. We need to get we need to get more equipment, more ordnance, more spare parts faster. The Taiwanese Air Force is chewing up its spare parts because it's having to do so much, so many air defense missions, and uh, China has just caused a big problem here and uh, a big opportunity for misunderstanding an accidental airline shoot down. This is their M503 southbound route through the Straits, which they now have rerouted to right up to the center line, uh, which can cause, uh, gives less response time to the Taiwanese, and they're, they're weaponizing civil air traffic, which nothing good happens when you introduce civil air traffic into contentious airspace. Think KL-007 in 1983, uh, the Iranian shoot down in uh, 1988. So, uh, this is this is bad, and this is don't don't ever introduce civil air traffic into such situations. All right, Colonel John Mills, thank you much for your thank you so much for your insight. David, thank you very much. On the violent attack on police officers near Times Square, authorities reportedly arrested some of the suspects in Phoenix, Arizona. That's after leaving New York City for California last week. Last week, this video went viral. It shows a group of people believed to be illegal immigrants attacking two police officers near Times Square. Manhattan's district attorney's office confirmed to NTD that the suspects were released without bail. Reports later suggested that the suspects boarded a bus for California after having been released from custody in New York. Fox News now says that authorities arrested the suspects in Phoenix, Arizona. ICE sources reportedly confirmed the arrests last night. It's not clear which of the suspects have been arrested. Also on Monday, New York City Mayor Eric Adams spoke about illegal immigrants who commit crimes. I want to reiterate uh, the overwhelming number of 170 plus thousand migrants and asylum seekers are attempting to continue their next leg of their journey of pursuing the American dream. But those who commit a crime will be treated like any other criminal in this city. The small number of people are breaking the law and having a huge impact on our public safety. And that is why we zeroed in on them. City officials added that it's often hard to track illegal immigrants who commit crimes. That's because the city sometimes has no information about them, such as no criminal history, no photos, no phone number or other information. Former President Trump is teasing possible rallies in New York City. He said New Yorkers are unhappy with the surge of illegal immigrants and rising crime, and that this could push them to vote for him. Entity's Chris Beers asked New Yorkers for their reactions. Donald Trump is planning to campaign right here at Madison Square Garden. He thinks that people are upset enough about the immigration crisis here that he can turn New York red. What do you think about that? If he turn New York red, it's a choice of the people. And I'm saying that if you're in the business sector here in New York City, 
you would agree with, with Donald Trump faced on what um, facing the state right now? No way. No way is no New York is not turning red. It's gonna be blue. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, he can make all the claims he wants, and I'm sure there are enough New Yorkers who feel that way and who love him to show up at Madison Square Garden. That's his stock in trade. But as for the rest of the state, I don't, you know, I don't think so. I believe so. You know, I don't have nothing against that man. You know, he put money in people's pocket during the stimulus packages, which is a good thing. I benefited from that. No, I don't. And I don't think President Trump, um, considering how he's used and abused his privileges in New York, has much of a right to say anything about what goes on in New York. No. No, he's not right. Uh, I think he's upset about it and he wants to rally up his troops and get everyone else to be angry about it as well. Until he puts an actual solution forward, other than just deport them all, which is a non-solution, I, I really don't see him flipping anything red. People are mad enough, though. I, I do think people are angry enough to want to do something about it where the Democrats have to step up, but I just don't see any Republican solution that's going to work. House lawmakers are set to vote today on a resolution to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The House Homeland Security. The House Homeland Security Committee filed its impeachment resolution last week. They accused Mayorkas of high crimes and misdemeanors in his handling of the southern border. Two GOP congressmen, Representatives Tom McClintock and Ken Buck, have already said they would vote against the resolution. Both have argued that an impeachable offense has not been identified. With full attendance, Republicans can only lose three votes to pass the impeachment resolution. If the full House passes the articles, Mayorkas would become the first cabinet secretary to be impeached in nearly 150 years. The Federal Aviation Administration is stepping up oversight of Boeing in the wake of a mid-air emergency involving its 737 MAX 9 aircraft. An FAA administrator testified before the House Transportation and Infra Infrastructure Committee earlier this morning. We then approved a thorough inspection and maintenance process that was performed on each of the grounded aircraft prior to returning to service. We've begun an audit of Boeing's production and quality control practices and we've informed Boeing that the FAA will not grant any production expansion of the MAX until we're satisfied the quality control issues uncovered during this process are resolved. Going forward, we will have more boots on the ground, closely scrutinizing and monitoring production and manufacturing activities. FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker didn't say when the restrictions on Boeing will be lifted. The airplane manufacturer has come under scrutiny after the door of an Alaska Airlines jet blew off mid-flight in January. The FAA says it's conducting a six-week audit of all elements of production at Boeing. It'll re-examine the long-standing practice of delegating some critical safety tasks to Boeing. The agency has faced harsh criticism for its actions in the run-up to the MAX certification. Coming up, those misusing commercial spyware could find themselves out of luck if they want to come to the U.S. Find out about Secretary of State Antony Blinken's new rule. And Russia today declining to comment on an alleged visit by Tucker Carlson. We'll have more on the rumors of an interview with Russian President Vladimir Putin when we return. President Biden had a bit of a mix-up in Las Vegas on Sunday. He told a crowd of people at a campaign event that he had recently met with Francois Mitterrand, the French president who died almost 30 years ago. When I sat down and I said, America's back, 
And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean from France, looked at me and said, uh, said, you know, why, why how long you back? Francois Mitterrand died in 1996. He was president of France from 1981 to 1995. Biden has faced increasing criticism over his age, verbal stumbles, and mental fitness. The latest NBC News polls show 76% of voters are concerned about his age. As for Nevada's Democratic primary, Biden is expected to face minimal competition from his challengers. The president narrowly won Nevada in 2020, and he's visiting the state to energize voters for the upcoming fall campaign. With the war in the Middle East, there begs a question. Is the U.S. prepared to respond effectively to terrorist attacks? Earlier, I spoke with Kyle Scheidler, counterterrorism analyst with the Center for Security Policy, for his take. Kyle, thank you for joining us. Now, in terms of counterterrorism preparedness, have the terrorist attacks on, the, on Israel affected the U.S.'s ability to react? And if so, how? Well, I think the, one of the things that the U.S. counterintelligence should have learned from the October 7th attack on Israel is not to be overly reliant on electronic intelligence. The Israelis were very reliant uh, and assumed that they had total electronic coverage of the border in Gaza, that they had very, very advanced uh, intelligence capabilities over what Hamas was doing and what they were planning. And it turned out that they were deceived uh, ba pretty basically uh, by Hamas's op uh, counterintelligence operations, which led them to being strategically surprised. So the United States also over relies on electronic surveillance and electronic intelligence to try to tell it what, uh, what the terrorists are planning. And the problem with that is if terrorists know that you're listening to them, they can control what you hear when you listen to them and so that they can, they can try to deceive you. So the America, American counterintelligence really needs to think about uh, the sophistication that terrorists put into their intelligence and their counterintelligence and, and avoid being deceived the way that the Israeli forces were. Also, I want to ask you about um, U.S. military bases in the Middle East have also become targets for attack. A recent drone attack that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan and injured dozens more, for example. What's, what's the best course of action for the U.S. to prevent and respond to further attacks? Well, I think we have to seriously look at what the purpose of those bases and those troops in the region are. Are they achieving any strategic objective, or are they essentially serving as human shields? And one of the problems I think we have is the Biden administration is essentially allowing the Iranians and the Iranian militias to dictate uh, what happens because they're so afraid of escalation. Instead of responding aggressively, the Biden administration has re responded very, um, in a very soft way, which has encouraged the Iranians and their militias, which just make our troops in the region targets. So what is the purpose of, uh, of the troops there if they are not going to be uh, aggressively defended when they get attacked? And that's a question I think the American people are asking right now. Uh, people in Congress are asking right now. And I haven't heard a really good answer from the Defense Department uh, or from the Biden administration as to what those troops are supposed to do for us in the region. Kyle, what needs to be done to address and prevent this issue? Well, there actually doesn't need to be any additional legal uh, systems. We don't need new bills. We don't need new legislation. They simply need to enforce the law. They simply need to prevent 
individuals from crossing, uh, return those individuals who do cross uh, as soon as possible. They need to restore interior immigration enforcement. The Biden administration is almost entirely shut down internal immigration enforcement, which means that once these individuals uh, are let into the country, uh, if they do not appear for immigration courts, uh, we essentially have no way of finding them and sending them back. All of that needs to be fixed. But it doesn't require any legislation. All of these things are already in the law. They're already required by the law. They're simply being ignored. Kyle Scheidler, counterterrorism analyst with Center for Security Policy. Thank you for your time. Plans to impose restrictions on suspected abusers of commercial spyware. Secretary of State Antony Blinken introduced a new rule yesterday. The move aims to step up the government's actions against the wrongful use of spyware. It is part of a larger plan to influence the behavior of foreign governments and companies involved in digital spying activities. Blinken says the policy targets those using commercial spyware to monitor, harass, or intimidate people like journalists and activists. The visa restrictions will prevent those who profit from or help misuse spyware from entering the U.S. commercial spyware. And a software that can be secretly installed on devices like phones to spy or gather sensitive information. And Arizona is stepping forward to combat a crime against humanity. State lawmakers pushing for a bill fighting forced organ harvesting in China. That is, harvesting organs from victims without their consent. And often while the victim is still alive. In 2018, an international tribunal in London gave its final judgment on allegations of forced organ harvesting. The tribunal was led by Sir Geoffrey Nice, the lead prosecutor of the trial of a former president of the communist state, Yugoslavia. It is beyond doubt that forced harvesting of organs happened on a substantial scale and by state-organized or approved organizations and individuals. Back to the Arizona bill. If it goes through, it would restrict financial support for people in Arizona who travel abroad to get organ transplants, including to China. This aims to prevent Americans from unknowingly getting blood on their hands. For years, investigators say China has been matching patients with organs at speeds unimaginable in the West. In 2022, securing a heart for a patient in Wuhan, China, took four days. In 2020, doctors presented a Chinese woman with four hearts to choose from in just 10 days. And in, and in 2005, after a phone call from a top Chinese health official, Two hospitals in China delivered two livers to that official within 24 hours. In the U.S., it's common for patients to wait a year for a heart. Right now, over 100,000 Americans are on the national transplant wait list. It's common for patients to die waiting. Without a volunteer, voluntary organ donation system like America's, China became the top destination for organ tourism in early 2000s. Foreigners traveled to China for organs, drawn in by the extremely short wait times. A question the West has been asking China for years, where do the organs come from? Ethnic groups targeted for this mass harvesting include Uyghurs, who suffer from Xi Jinping's ongoing genocide, and the Falun Gong, whose peaceful meditation and exercise practices and exceptional good health make their organs highly desirable. Uyghurs are a Muslim minority from China's Xinjiang region, while Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, is a peaceful meditation practice with followers spread across China and the globe. 
The Chinese regime has been persecuting both, arresting, detaining them with numbers in the millions, and even torturing them to death inside prisons. This is still going on in China. And in more China news, thousands of illegal marijuana farms across the United States. Operated by Chinese nationals with potential ties to Beijing. Where are these operations located? More details coming tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from the UK, Spain and other European countries. The European Union is showing continued support for Ukraine. The bloc's foreign policy chief, Josep Borrell, is in Kyiv today as the war nears its third year. This after the European Union approved a major aid package for Ukraine last week. Finally, all member states agreed on these 50 billion to support Ukraine in a moment in which a certain age of pressure gives back more. And we will continue working in order to increase our military support. Russia is declining to comment on reports of Tucker Carlson visiting the Russian presidential administration. Russian media showed pictures of Carlson at several spots around Moscow on Monday. Some believe the former Fox News host may become the first Western journalist to interview Russian President Vladimir Putin during the war in Ukraine. A Kremlin spokesperson saying today he won't comment on the movements of an American journalist. Multiple countries and tech companies are pledging to do more to tackle the use of cyber spying tools. Countries led by Britain, France and the United States joint, signed a joint statement today. In total, the declaration was signed by 35 nations as well as tech firms including Google, Microsoft and Meta. The statement recognizes the need to combat spyware being used to listen to phone calls, steal photos and remotely operate cameras and microphones. Signatories warn that not placing stricter controls on such software increases the risk of espionage. On Monday, the U.S. announced new visa restrictions for those misusing commercial spyware. Spanish farmers today blocked traffic on some of the country's main highways. They're protesting high costs, bureaucracy and competition from non-EU nations. Farmers in France, Belgium, Italy, Portugal, Germany, the Netherlands and more have raised similar concerns. They say environmental rules imposed by the EU make them less competitive and that imports from countries with less regulation undercut their prices. Coming up, the San Francisco 49ers face off against the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 58. What coaches and players are saying before Sunday's championship game in Las Vegas. Shen Yun completes 10 shows in London, leaving audience members amazed at the artistry of the performance. Hear what they had to say after the break. San Francisco 49ers are set to face off against the Kansas City Chiefs at Super Bowl 58 on Sunday. Coaches and players gathered at Las Vegas Allegiant Stadium to give their thoughts ahead of the NFL championship game. The Kansas City Chiefs will take on the San Francisco 49ers Sunday for the coveted Vince Lombardi Trophy. For 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy, a chance to play in the championship game came sooner than expected. I think, you know, for me, I always wanted to be ready for whenever my opportunity came. I didn't know if I was going to, you know, be a backup for a while in the NFL and, and maybe get a shot in three to four to five years. Head coach Kyle Shanahan explained what his 24-year-old quarterback would need to do to win. 
You got to be able to hang in there and take hits and be fearless. You got to be able to read coverages to know when it's the right time to go there. You got to have the touch to drop it in over people. You got to have the patience and touch and balance to check it down when it's not there. Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes described his emotions leading up to Sunday's big game. I think every, every experience that you get, you can learn from and you can get gained more from. And so um, you're always going to have nerves going into the Super Bowl. It's about embracing those nerves, um, understanding that they're going to be there, um, and then going out there and being who you are. Kansas City Chiefs head coach Andy Reid has taken the defending champions to four Super Bowls in the past five seasons. He also praised opposing quarterback Purdy's talent and ability to adapt. Um, he's a heck of a football player, and he does everything really well. And, um, and so that presents a, an issue. He can throw the ball, he can run the ball, he's smart, he, you know, he can handle pressure, all those things he does a great job with. Singer-songwriter Taylor Swift has been one of this season's biggest sensations. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell laughed off claims that the league had scripted the romance between her and the Chiefs tight end, Travis Kelsey. I don't think I'm that good a scripter um, or anybody on our staff. I, I, I think it's, you know, I, listen, there is no way that I could have scripted that one. Let's just put it that way. But she is, um, or anybody in our office, she's, she's in a remarkable performer. The Super Bowl will kick off Sunday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The American Gaming Association says nearly 68 million Americans plan to bet on this year's Super Bowl. Betting participation is projected to be 35% higher than last year, setting a new record. Bettors plan to wager an estimated $23.1 billion on this year's Super Bowl. That's up from $16 billion last year. The projection accounts for both legal and illegal sports betting. Sports betting is legal in 38 states plus Washington, D.C. About 73% of adults say they plan to watch the game this year. 47% of bettors plan to bet on the Kansas City Chiefs. 44% are expected to put money on the 49ers. FanDuel Sportsbook has the San Francisco 49ers favored by two and a half points. And Shen Yun Performing Arts dazzled audience members at London's Eventum Apollo Theatre. The dance and music company just completed 10 shows there, with some theatre-goers saying they felt transported to another world. The way they do it in sequence with each other, that to me is most fantastic, because it, I'm looking to see whether one of them steps out of place, and there was not one piece, uh, you know, one position that I could see them out of place of. It's not through the words, it's through the expressive movements, it's through the, the song, the music, and it just... It, gives me tingles. It's really, really special. China's rich history goes back 5,000 years. Shen Yun's mission is to revive it. Under communist rule, it was almost lost. Shen Yun performances also include stories from modern-day China. People need to know what China was like before communism, before they were so oppressed. And I think they're very brave to come out here and tell it and tell their stories so that other people know what's happening and what's happened to them. A seamless blend of dancing, live music and a 3D backdrop transports the audience from ancient dynasties to heavenly scenes. I almost felt as if I was transported to a different realm, you know, of celestial beings. That's how it, it felt. It was magical. This is totally unbelievable. This is the one-off. There's, there's no other show like it in the world that I have encountered. Don't change it in any way. Your performance was fantastic. Audiences across the world have been touched by Shen Yun's energy, purity and athletic beauty. 
Shenyun is continuing to revive China's authentic culture on its 2024 UK tour. Shenyun's London shows are coming to a close, but it will continue its UK tour in cities including Liverpool and Manchester. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. In a first and exclusive interview with NTD, Jesse Browdy, a principal dancer of Shenyun Performing Arts, tells NTD good morning about life as a dancer for the world-renowned classical Chinese dance company. What was the training process like, and how did classical Chinese dance become his career of choice? NTD's Evelyn Lee was also joined by his father, who recalled the difficult decision to send his then-teenage son away to school and how he knew it was the right choice. Watch the full interview exclusively on NTD Good Morning this Wednesday at 7 a.m. Eastern Time. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.